0: The seals are opening, the four horsemen are galloping, the martyrs are petitioning, the weirdness is arriving. Welcome to the backdrop for Pomona Valley Church. That's right, things have been marginally strange up until now in the book of Revelation, but we've got a long stretch of bizarrity, bizarritude bizarreness coming our way over these next several episodes. We're starting today with chapters six and seven and then the first few verses of chapter eight as well. And in this passage, we get the first cycle of visions, the seven seals, which will be followed by seven trumpets and seven bowls. And those cycles of seven basically serve as John's narrative framework for the visions and what he wants to say to the churches in Asia. Each of these cycles has the aforementioned seven, of whatever thing it is, but then it also includes interludes, where other things happen, either in the middle of or as a part of one of these seals or trumpets or bowls or whatever. And all of this makes interpreting what John is saying perilous and uncertain, to say the least. <laughs> and in light of that, before we start talking about the famous so-called Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse... There are a couple of big questions that need to be addressed because these are the big questions that will determine a lot of how we interpret the rest of what is to come in this book. First big question, how does time pass in Revelation? What does the timeline of events look like? One option is that John is telling a linear story from beginning to end. So then the things that happen in chapter 7 would happen later in time than the things that happen in chapter 6. The trumpets would happen after the seals and before the bowls in time. This is the chronological option, which is the one that is most often chosen by more conservative, dispensationalist-type readings. It has its problems, such as the fact that sometimes the same things get destroyed multiple times and in different ways over the course of the book. A third of the grass gets destroyed, but then later God says not to touch the grass, which doesn't make much sense if a third of it's already been destroyed, that sort of thing. This option also has the problem that the people of God seem to be saved in a final sort of way multiple times before we even get to the resurrection at the end of the book. It also has the problem that Jesus is born in chapter 12 after a whole lot of destruction has already happened. These problems are the reason that the left behind books get so freaking weird they have to do some real interpretive gymnastics to try and make everything fit together. Mostly, it has the problem that reading what is clearly meant to be an artistic, poetic, symbolic book in a nice, neat, orderly, linear way, as if it were written by a 20th century historian, it's not a very good reading strategy. <laughs> we, needless to say, will not be taking this position. Another option, is the one Brian Blunt uses, which is that the three cycles of seals, trumpets, and bulls are all about the same time, the same events, and they go in kind of a spiral. John goes over the same events from three different perspectives in order to make his point. This has the advantage of not having the same things be destroyed or saved multiple times because the repetition is intentional. Blunt also interprets the Jesus parts in chapter 12 as a flashback of sorts, back to the roots of this cosmic battle that's being waged. And then time jumps back forward again um, after that section is done. So this approach at least sort of works. It makes a little bit more sense of what's going on. But there is a slightly different perspective that you get from N.T. Wright, Craig Kester, and others, scholars, which is that there is certainly some degree of spiraling that's going on, in terms of the timeline, but not necessarily a complete repetition of the same events. Rather, there are different events narrated in each of the three cycles, but they all end in the same place, and some of the events are woven together and interspersed with each other. This is a more complicated perspective on the timeline of Revelation, of course, but it also seems to me to fit the actual book we have in front of us better. To some degree, these different visions are repetitions. To some degree, they are intensifications or a development of themes that recur throughout the book. To some degree, they are from alternate perspectives or interwoven with each other. We will point out these dynamics when we see examples of them along the way. So that's the first question. How does the timeline work? Answer, it's complicated. (laughs) I'm sure you expected nothing less from me. Okay, the second big question that's related to that first one is, when do these things happen? Are they happening in the present tense for John, like the visions from the first few chapters of the book certainly are? Are they in the near future for John, like the the next few decades of the first and second centuries? Or are they in the distant future, the end of the world, in other words? Or are they something completely different? When does John think he's talking about in these visions? Some scholars land on the present tense answer, that since John is writing to people in the first century, he must be telling them things that are happening right then, stuff that they would care about. This has the advantage of matching with the visions from the first few chapters. It has the advantage of matching up some of the symbols that clearly refer to Rome and particular aspects of Rome with the reality of Rome that the people saw all around them in the first century. It has the disadvantage of, of forcing every symbol to match up one-to-one with a first-century reality, even when they don't seem to. And the fact that the story ends with the New Jerusalem is a bit tricky to square with there not being a New Jerusalem coming down from heaven in the first century. So it lines up with the beginning of the book, not so much the end. Usually, conservative dispensationalist types take the opposite view, that this is all happening in the so-called end times, and every generation of conservative dispensationalists has tried to match up current events with the symbols in Revelation in order to say, see, the end times are upon us. That usually hasn't gone very well, because we're still going here. The thing is, though, that many of the scholars we have been reading for this series also take these events to be set in the end times, the four horsemen of the Apocalypse are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, after all. This perspective has the advantage of linking up with the end of the book, at risk of not always making a whole lot of sense of why a first-century Christian in western Turkey would care all that much about what John is writing about. This perspective also has the challenge of not making much sense of why the birth of Jesus shows up right in the middle of things, unless you do something like blunt and say, oh, well, that's a flashback in time. N.T. Wright disagrees with both of these perspectives in a way that I find to be far more persuasive. His perspective, if I might paraphrase it a bit, is that yes, some of the visions are set in the present tense for John, and some of the visions are set in the future. Some even might be set in the past, and that those past, present, and future tenses are all swirling around and around. John is, in other words, linking the present-day reality of his people— with both the actions of God in the past to save Israel, and the future actions of God to judge and restore creation. These are all linked up, and what is happening now makes sense in light of what God has done, and what God will do in the future. This has the advantage of flexibility, which is kind of an essential quality of an interpretation strategy in a book as unique as this one. It also has the advantage of being similar to how the rest of the Bible works. The whole story of the Bible is telling about God's actions in the past and God's promises for the future in order to help us make sense of our present and how we ought to live in our present. So we maybe ought to start from the perspective that matches with the rest of the Bible and think that the book of Revelation might be doing something along the same lines. One of the keys to this interpretation is something we've said before when we have talked about apocalyptic literature in previous episodes of The Backdrop, specifically as it showed up in Jeremiah and Matthew. There is a recurring set of images in this type of literature of, say, stars falling from the sky or the sky being rolled up like a scroll or earthquakes and mountains falling into the sea or the sun and moon and stars going dark. And it's important to repeat ourselves again here that that imagery isn't about the end of the world, at least not in a literal way. And even the scholars we are reading for this series make mistakes in reading this type of imagery a lot. That imagery of the stars falling from the sky, etc., does not mean the end of the world in the sense of our space-time universe literally ceasing to exist. That imagery means instead, figuratively, the end of the world as we know it. N.T. Wright says that these images would refer to something we might call an earth-shattering event. No earth's getting shattered. It's a figure of speech. 9-11 was an earth-shattering event. COVID-19, an earth-shattering event. The world as we knew it ceases to exist in some real way, not some literal way. This is what apocalyptic language and images of the sun going dark or the moon turning to blood meant in this sort of literature. To read it and think stars are actually falling would be like if someone in the future were to read a history of COVID-19 and thought the disease had actually shattered apart the rocks of the earth itself or something like that. Like I said, we came across language like this in Jeremiah, when the prophet was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon thousands of years ago now. It was the end of the world as they knew it, but the world, well, it's still here. We came across Jesus using language like this to describe the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome in A.D. 70. Again, end of the world as they knew it, but the sun kept rising. All the stars did not fall from the sky. So when that language shows up again in Revelation, we should interpret it in the same way. God is doing a new thing, an earth shattering thing, something that will shake the status quo to its core and overturn the systems and structures and empires that oppress God's people. And oppose god's purposes and misreading this imagery is why so many read this book as an only end times book when what i am going to argue is that it's really an all of time book that john is talking about all of history and showing the people in first century turkey the patterns and promises that have characterized the world and god in the past and that will continue to characterize the world and god in the future God was and is and is to come. The same yesterday, today, and forever. So to sum up my little not little, preamble here, we are going to approach these visions as swirly, spirally pictures that artistically and complicatedly at times describe the patterns of how the world works and how God responds to the ways the world works through the past, present, and future. John is talking about what God has done what God is doing, and what God will ultimately do in response to, as Revelation 11 puts it, the forces that work to destroy the good earth that God has created. Okay, with all that said, let's jump into chapter (laughs) 6. My preambles are longer than the actual interpretation part. Sorry, not sorry, as the kids are definitely still saying these days. Brian Blunt translates the first verses of chapter 6 like this. Then I saw when the lamb opened the first of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say, as with a voice of thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a dazzling horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering, in order to conquer even more. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And another horse, fiery red, went out. Its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth, so that humans might slaughter one another. "'A great sword was given to him. "'When he opened the third seal, "'I heard the third living creature say, "'Come,' and I looked, "'and behold, there was a black horse. "'Its rider held a balanced scale in his hand, "'and I heard something like a voice "'in the midst of the four living creatures say, "'A liter of wheat for a denarius "'and three liters of barley for a denarius, "'but do not harm the oil and the wine. "'When he opened the fourth seal, "'I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, "'Come,' and I looked, and behold, a pale greenish gray horse. The name of its rider was Death, and Hades followed with him. They were given authority over a quarter of the earth to kill with sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. So here we have the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they are often called. As you can see, they aren't actually called that in Revelation itself. They don't have names other than the final one, Death. The first question we need to address is whether these should be seen as God's judgment, his punishment of the world, or if they are descriptive of God allowing certain horrors to exist. The text says that God gives authority to these writers, but that isn't the same as God wanting these things to happen. Some scholars, like Brian Blunt, see the come as a command to the writers, like God is summoning them to come and do God's bidding and to execute God's end-of-time judgment on the world. Others, like N.T. Wright and Craig Kester, think that come is a command to John. Come and see what these writers are doing. Some of the original Greek manuscripts actually make this explicit by adding come and see to the text, but the most reliable manuscripts don't have the and see part. It's just come um, in a more ambiguous sort of way. Even so, I think it makes the most sense to read this as the angels inviting John to see the destruction that the writers bring. I think we see this in how the riders are portrayed. They're not portrayed as God's agents. These are manifestations of the forces that oppose what God is doing in the world. The first rider is a conquering king going after power and longing to conquer even more and gain more power for himself. This first horseman, interestingly, is described similarly to how Jesus will be portrayed riding a white horse with a crown later in the book. But this should be seen as something that John does regularly. It's a corruption of the good king represented by Jesus, not that the horseman is similar to Jesus in any real way. This king is power-hungry and insatiable. The second rider is war that takes peace from the earth. The third rider brings economic collapse and famine. The grain prices mentioned are 8 to 15 times what the normal price would have been in John's day, such that a worker would need his whole daily wage just to buy enough barley, which was the cheaper, inferior grain of the time, to feed his family. The fourth writer is, as John tells us, death. And there's actually an allusion to a prophecy from Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 21 here. The important part, though, is that since these all, especially death, are the forces that oppose what God is doing in the world, I think N.T. Wright gets it exactly right when he says that these four represent not God's judgment or punishment, but rather a picture of what it looks like when the forces of evil do their worst. These are the forces that oppose God, unleashed on earth, power and war and greed and death. They are not God punishing the earth. They are humanity punishing itself almost, and God allowing them to go down paths that lead to death. Another important note from Wright, both the writers and their sequence are symbolic meaning this is not a progression where conquering leads to war, leads to economic collapse, and famine leads to death. They all happen together. There's no conquering without death, for example. They go together. They're all interwoven, of course. Wright uses a really helpful analogy for understanding this, actually. He writes, This is one of the differences between writing something with words and writing it with music. In music, you can have several lines which all happen at the same time, but with words, you have to say everything in sequence. This seven-fold sequence, four down, three to go so far, is not chronological. It's an exposition of a sevenfold reality. Craig Kester points out that these four writers are also intended to subvert the ideology and propaganda of Rome. The first writer carries a bow, which Roman soldiers did not do. This is a non-Roman conqueror, perhaps referring to the Parthian Empire that was to the east and which Rome had a checkered past with. The second writer takes peace away from the earth, and the Pax Romana, the peace brought about and secured by the Roman Empire, was a key plank in the worldview of those who would worship Rome. The third writer brings about the collapse of the economic prosperity that Rome promises if only you will put your trust in her. And then the fourth writer brings death to a quarter of Rome's subjects John is trying to undermine Roman propaganda throughout this sequence, saying the stability that Rome claims and the power Rome claims are not as secure as they want you to think they are. Your safety is an illusion. And this is a key point, I think. John is subverting Roman claims, so then these writers are only present tense for John? Well, no, not really. He doesn't expect to see war and inflation in the streets tomorrow. The writers sound end-of-the-worldy. So is this future tense? Well, no, not really, because John is challenging the claims of Rome at the time. Here's the thing, and how we are going to read these cycles. It's more complicated than any one of these options. John is doing both. I think this is the first instance of the spirally nature of what John is saying. Conquering kings, lusting after power, War, economic collapse and famine, death, they have always been. They are. They will be in the future. Empires always want you to believe that they're bringing safety and security. Just trust in us. And the forces of evil and chaos are always undermining that safety and security. This is the past, present, and future. The forces of evil and chaos are always there. Opposing God's purposes, bringing death, bringing injustice. But, and this is important as well, God allows those forces to do their work because God gives freedom to humans and to the oppressive forces that we embody and unleash. But God limits the damage. The horsemen can't destroy the vines and trees, which would have meant long term famine instead of one season of famine. Death is only given the ability to touch one quarter of the population, not more. We needn't take this literally here, that exactly one quarter of the population is killed, just that while a large number, a quarter, might suffer under the forces of oppression, greed, and war, God will not allow those forces to overtake the world completely. God remains in ultimate control, even while allowing the forces of evil, the ones we've chosen for ourselves, to run amok. Craig Kester puts this really well in his commentary, He writes, theologically, Revelation works with a tension. The threats represented by the horsemen are not directly imposed by God, and yet they seem subject to God. The Lamb does not bring war and violence into existence by opening the seals, but shows that they are subordinate to the purposes of God, who limits the third horseman by protecting the oil and wine, and then confines death's sphere of operation to only a fourth of the earth. Ultimate authority belongs to God, but the forces of evil, which are in rebellion against God, also operate in the world. That's the tension that John is working with. These first four seals, the four horsemen, are a description, I think, of reality, as it has been in the past, the present, and the future, awaiting God to do something to put an end to the injustice and the oppression, which is just what the fifth seal calls for. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been executed because of the word of God, that is, because of the witness they had given. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, Master, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? Then they were each given a dazzling robe and told to rest a little longer until the work of their fellow servants, who are their brothers and sisters, who were about to be killed as they themselves had been, would be complete. The voice of those killed by the forces of evil who oppose the works of God, they call out for justice. Like in the Psalms, how long, O Lord, will you allow these forces to run amuck and prevent your purposes from taking hold? How long will you allow those faithful to you to suffer? This isn't right. Do something. Act. The voices come from under the altar, we are told. This is where in an actual sacrificial system, the blood of the sacrifice would pool up and soak into the earth. So I think this is analogous to what Genesis 4 says when Cain murders Abel and God says, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. This is not, in other words, and I think N.T. Wright is wrong here. In fact, this is not the actual martyrs sitting under the altar, like God made a little room for them down there or something. This is symbolic through and through. Just as God could hear Abel's blood crying out for justice from the dirt, so God can hear the blood of those killed because they were loyal to God, crying out for justice. This is the ongoing response of the victims of the forces in the first four seals. Oppression and injustice happen, and God can hear the victims of those things crying out for justice. How long, O oh Lord, How long will you allow injustice to have its way? That's the question they ask. But the answer given in this seal is not really how long, but rather why. Why is injustice allowed to keep on going? Why is God not acting yet? And the answer is that the work of their fellow faithful witnesses is not yet complete. Some read this as there haven't been enough martyrs killed yet, and God's waiting until the tally sheet gets filled up or something. But I think a better reading is that those faithful to God are continuing the work that God has given God's people to do, to faithfully represent Jesus to the world in the hopes that the world would turn back to God. In other words, what John was telling the churches to do in chapters two and three, God's plan is for God's people to show the world what God is like and for the world to see the beauty and repent, to turn away from the forces of evil and oppression and to turn to the goodness and justice of our God. So why hasn't God acted to put an end to injustice? Because God is still waiting for as many people as possible to come home. This is an important ongoing theme in Revelation. The work of the faithful is not yet done. God is holding off the end for as long as possible so that more can join the people of God. The work of the church, in other words, is ongoing which is why the horsemen still ride, the oppressed still cry out for justice, and God doesn't yet bring the end. Even so, it will not go on forever. God's justice will come. Then I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and a great earthquake occurred, and the sun became as black as sackcloth, and the full moon became as red as blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree shaken by a fierce wind drops its unripe figs. And the sky vanished like a rolled-up scroll, and every mountain and island was shaken from its place. And the kings of the earth and the important people and the generals and the wealthy and the powerful and every slave and free person hid themselves in the caves and in the mountain rocks. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand before it? Here, many have said, including Blunt, Ah, eschatological judgment, the end of the world! But this is exactly what we talked about a few minutes ago. These are standard Old Testament symbols for the judgment of God within this present reality. These are similar words to what Jeremiah and Jesus used to describe the fall of Jerusalem in their day. N.T. Wright makes the key point. If this were the actual end of the space-time universe, why are the rich hiding in caves? (laughs) I thought the sky had disappeared. This is, to use one example, exactly the language used in Hosea 10.8 to describe the fall of Jerusalem, not the end of the world. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. And so this too is not the end of the world. This whole section of seals, I think, is describing the cycle that is played out throughout history. Conquest and power and war and greed and death run amok. That's the first four seals. And God hears the voices of the victims of these systems and structures calling out for justice. That's seal number five. And God holds off for as long as possible, hoping that people will repent. But finally, God's justice comes and earth shattering events occur. Jerusalem falls. The systems and structures are upended so that people can have a new chance to rebuild with justice. That's seal six. But then the same cycle repeats. This is why John uses similar language to the Old Testament prophets to draw attention to the cycle of it all. This is how things went back then. It's how things are happening now. It will happen again in the future, but it will not happen forever. God is limiting the destruction, holding back the forces of evil from being fully unleashed. And ultimately, God's justice comes and will come. In other words, and to try and be as clear as I can be here, John is not referring to one instance of this sequence playing out either in his day or at the end of time. He is using images and concepts that connect with the past, present, and future, because this sequence is the ongoing cycle of human rebellion and sin, and then the desire for justice, and God's mercy and actions in light of injustice. In this scene, interestingly, John uses the image of people hiding in the caves, and he mentions seven categories— of humanity, from the kings all the way down to slaves, all hiding from the wrath of the lamb. In other words, seven categories, the fullness of humanity, all of humanity. We've got seven again as a symbol, but they're all blind to reality to a certain degree. Who can stand before the wrath of the lamb, they ask. And the implied answer is, well, no one, no one can stand before the lamb, but we're going to see the real answer in the next chapter. They fear the one seated on the throne, Yahweh, and the lamb, Jesus. But why? Why do they fear? And I thought N.T. Wright and Craig Kester both had some good thoughts on this topic. And so I'm going to read quickly from each of them. First, N.T. Wright says this. He says, They realize they are entirely at the mercy of the God who rules the world. Their own schemes have come to nothing. What is now to become of them? And then later says, But the lamb's anger is the utter rejection by love incarnate of all that is unloving. The only people who should be afraid of it are those who are determined to resist the call of love. And then Kester writes, What humanity sees in this vision is partially correct. The death of the Lamb confronted the dominion of sin and evil with the power of divine love. Those who oppose the Lamb will experience His coming as a threat. What they do not see is that the Lamb who threatens the current order can also redeem those from every tribe, people, nation, and language, which is exactly what we see in chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Then I saw another angel who had the seal of the living God Ascending from the rising of the sun, and he cried out with a foreboding voice to the four angels who were given power to damage the earth and the sea, saying, Do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees until we have marked the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, sealed out of every tribe of the people of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 sealed, from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 And we've gone through the first six, so we're expecting seal seven, an explanation of the earth-shaking events promised in seal six, or a follow-up to them, some final response to the ongoing cycle of human rebellion and sin and injustice and oppression, a final answer to the how-long question of the faithful ones from seal five. But instead, we get a pause, an interlude. The end isn't coming yet. The image is of four angels either at the four corners of the earth, kind of picturing the earth as a square of sorts, or they're at the imagined source of the north, south, east, and west winds. The exact location isn't all that important because this isn't, you know, a geography textbook. The winds are symbolic of God's final judgment, blowing away the evil and oppression that is working to destroy God's good creation, and the angels are ready to release the wind. But then another angel tells them to stop. This angel shares a lot of qualities with how Jesus and Yahweh are described in this book. So some take this angel to be a representation of Jesus. It's interesting that throughout the Bible, the difference between the representatives of God, angels, and God's self, is kind of blurry sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes a person is interacting with what is called an angel, but then it seems like they were actually acting, interacting with, in some sense with God all along. Jacob, as one example, wrestles with an angel but then is renamed Israel or the one who wrestles with God, that sort of thing. It's possible that's what's happening here, uh, that the angel might actually be Jesus. And John is just using angel as kind of a descriptor for a heavenly being of some sort. Whoever exactly this angel is, he tells the winds to hold off because something still needs to happen. The faithful need to be sealed. Sealing is a symbolic way of marking those who belong to God's family those who are faithful witnesses who do not accommodate to the worship of Rome, or whatever idols exist in their time and place. We will see this sealing contrasted with the sealing that the beast does later in the book. A recurring theme in Revelation is of evil being a counterfeit version of good, taking on the appearances of good things, but being used for oppressive and violent ends instead of just and peaceful ones. John hears the number of those sealed, 144,000. uh, There have been many interpretations of this number, including some who take it literally, like 144,000 is the number of how many will end up saved. This is almost certainly misreading the numerical symbolism of the book. 144,000 is 12 times 12 thousands. And as with the 24 elders earlier in the book, it's probably meant to represent the fullness of God's people. Not just 12 tribes, but 12 times 12 tribes and a thousand of them. More on that in just a second. The list of tribes is unique in any source we have, Old Testament, New Testament, extra biblical. No one's quite sure why John uses this particular listing. Dan is missing and is replaced with one of Joseph's sons, but Joseph also appears instead of Ephraim. In most lists, Joseph doesn't appear, but both of his sons do, Manasseh and Ephraim, but not here. No one's quite sure why. Some have speculated that Dan and Ephraim are both associated with idol worship in the Old Testament, and so that's why they're left off. The problem with that is that most of the tribes engage in idol worship in the Old Testament, so why are just those two being singled out? One interesting suggestion I saw was that possibly the removal of one tribe and replacement uh, by another is an implicit reference to the removal and replacement of Judas from the Twelve Apostles. Maybe? There isn't nearly enough evidence here to be sure exactly what John is getting at with the specific tribes mentioned. But what we can be pretty sure about is that John is saying that all God's people are sealed here, symbolically marked as belonging to Jesus, and that God's people are heirs to the promises that God made to Israel, a remaking of the 12 tribes, only more so. But then, just as with the lion and lamb earlier in the book, John hears one thing, 144,000, but then sees another. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one was able to count, from all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, dressed in dazzling robes and with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a foreboding voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, singing, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night in his temple, and the one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat because the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What John sees is an uncountable multitude. The 144,000 is a symbol for the fullness of God's people. And then John sees the reality. They are the heirs to the promises of Israel, but made up of an uncountable congregation from every tribe, nation, language, ethnic group. This is the way that God's promises to Israel are fulfilled. Just as the lamb is the way the truth of the lion is fulfilled. As I hinted out earlier, the folk hiding in caves, afraid of the wrath of the lamb, ask who can stand before the lamb with the implicit answer being no one. But here we see the answer. An uncountable multitude from every nation can stand before the lamb. Everyone can, because this lamb isn't like the kings of the earth. One scholar I read made the point that this would have been an overwhelming and strikingly encouraging vision for the churches John is writing to, who were, let's remember, a small, fearful group of maybe a few dozen in any one of these cities. You seem small and powerless and vulnerable, John is saying, but look at what's true. Look at what will come to pass in the end. Take heart, small church. The multitude hold palm branches, and this may call to mind Palm Sunday for you, and it should. Both Jewish and Roman culture had associations with the symbol of palm branches. Kester points out that for Jews, palms were a symbol of victory and peace. They also would have been associated with the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which carried with it the hope that one day the nations would join Israel in worshiping Yahweh at the festival of booths. For Romans, palm branches were symbols of honor offered to a benefactor, a savior. Both sets of symbols work here, and John probably has them all in mind. The multitude are celebrating the victory and peace brought by Jesus and also giving honor to their savior and benefactor. One fun little note verse 11 has seven praiseworthy things about God named. Seven again, so all praise. The list could go on and on forever. John's constantly using symbols to make the points that he wants to make. And then a note on the Great Tribulation mentioned in verse 14. This is one of those things that has gotten so many different interpretations over the years, from some specific time period in the future, right before the final judgment, to a specific time period that the churches John is writing to are currently undergoing, to a much broader and more symbolic time period. Blunt makes a key point about this time period, this great tribulation, which is referred to often by the Old Testament prophets, as well as by John here. Blunt writes, this is not just any tribulation, but the great time of distress that would accompany the ushering in of God's day of judgment and salvation. The synoptic gospel declarations, see Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, attributed to Jesus, indicate that the response of hostile Roman and Jewish leaders, to acts of faithful discipleship, comprised the great tribulation's opening acts. In other words, the witness of Jesus and of the churches John is writing to is triggering the beginning of this great tribulation that sets the stage for even greater tribulation to come. John saw the actions of the Romans towards the churches of his time period not as the great tribulation, but as an opening act, or at least one of the opening acts to this time of great tribulation. And then Craig Kester takes the point a little bit further. He writes that Revelation refers to the idea that before the final coming of God's kingdom, there would be unprecedented affliction on earth. And he references Daniel 12, 1. Jewish writers described it as a time of violence, war, deprivation, and immorality. He writes, there are three interpretations of what this period in Revelation could mean with the third one being the most plausible. First, it could be a future tribulation, that the great affliction is imminent but has not yet begun. This is the position of many dispensationalists. A major problem with the dispensationalist view, Kester writes, is that Revelation does not envision Christians being raptured, but assumes that all Christians must be prepared to endure affliction. The second option is afflictions throughout time, that some readers are already facing affliction because of their faith and that the vision does not give a clear reference to time at all. But the third option, which is the one he finds most plausible, and I agree with him, is that this refers to a final affliction that's already occurring. This approach combines aspects of the other proposals. In Revelation, eschatological affliction, the great tribulation, begins when Satan is thrown down to earth in great wrath as a consequence of Christ's exaltation. This happens in chapter 12. We'll get to that later in the visionary world. It lasts for three and a half years, yet it encompasses the entire time between Christ's first and second comings. It is in other words, the time in which the readers live. This great tribulation began with Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. It continues through the time that John is writing to these churches. And it will continue until Christ comes again. So along with Kester, I think this great tribulation is meant to bring to mind the opposition faced by the followers of Jesus, the church, throughout church history. We are living through an ongoing tribulation that is building towards the time when God will finally bring justice and goodness. Just as the first six seals were describing the ongoing cycle of human history, so the ones who are sealed and who live through the great tribulation are part of the ongoing faithful witness of the church in the midst of a culture that opposes God and worships idols. And as I mentioned there in the reading from Kester, this will be further confirmed in future chapters when Satan shows up on the scene. One final note on this passage here, the final verses of chapter seven, they take us to the end of the story. The secure final destiny of the faithful in God's presence forever. John takes a moment of interlude to make a point. The final act of this story is the goodness of God winning. The cycle of human rebellion plays out throughout history. The faithful cry out for justice again and again. God acts, but in a limited way, so as to allow more to turn to God and join the multitude of God's people, and they will ultimately get the justice they long for. They will be blessed to live in god's presence eternally and we'll see a similar interlude in the next cycle the trumpets for now though the seventh seal is open and we'll close with this when the lamb opened the seventh seal there was silence in heaven for half an hour and i saw the seven angels who stand before god and they were given seven trumpets and another angel with a golden censer came and stood at the altar he was given a great quantity of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense went up with the prayers of the saints before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with some fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were thunders and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The most convincing interpretation of the silence that I found in verse one was that it was a calm before the storm sort of image a short break, not literally half an hour, but a short time in which the preparation for God's response to oppression and injustice and evil is coming. The angel brings the prayers of the faithful, which we have already seen mentioned, the how long O Lord prayers, the asking for vindication and justice. They are brought symbolically before God, and then they are thrown like fire onto the earth because God's response to the prayers for justice are To circle back to what we said earlier, earth shattering. Like God's response to the blood of Abel crying from the earth, like God's response to the cries of the slaves in Egypt for justice, like God's response to the injustice of Judea in Jeremiah, God holds off, sends prophets, hopes for repentance, and for humans to return to the way of life and goodness and justice. But when they don't, at some point, God needs to put an end to the oppression. And so the angels get their trumpets. And prepare to blow. And that's where we're going to stop this episode. Next time we will go through the trumpet cycle, which begins here in chapter 8 and will continue all the way through chapter 11. So read ahead for that, which will be coming out next week. Thanks as always for joining me. It's getting fun now, isn't it? (laughs) More weirdness to come next time. Until then, bye.